0: standing tall. Loyalty his breaking down the wall. In a world of chaos, he holds his support profound.
1: Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host, Abby Martin. This is Robbie Martin. Welcome, everybody.
2: A little shock jock for you this morning.
1: Yeah, gotta get our morning zoo radio on. <laughs> so... Just took a line of cocaine.
2: I'm ready to go, babe.
1: So, uh, oh yeah, you Hunter Biden. He's um, <laughs> so we t- we're going to spend the episode talking about Hunter Biden <laughs> today. Uh, so, the I mean, what's been going on with the presidential field, Abby? I mean, because this is we're already getting campaign commercials. We're already getting you know pre-primary debates with some of these candidates, and it's uh, it's pretty wacky to watch so far. I mean, we already gotten a real taste of what DeSantis's campaign looks like, and it's a pretty fucking badly run campaign, and he's really fucking it up and it's a uh, it's just sort of fascinating to watch all these different variations of weirdness i mean, r f k jr, his Israel loyalty has gotten to cartoonish proportions. I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's I almost feel embarrassed for people who stand for him very hard. I, I think a lot of people kind of quickly veered away from him. Let's get into it, Abby, because this is this is a wacky, wacky situation.
2: Well, I thought we were going to talk about Hunter Biden's laptop some more, so I'm a little disappointed um, because I wanted to talk about him renting out houses in Malibu with hookers and giant crack rocks and water slides. Um, because it makes him sound really uncool. So, you know, all the right-wing obsession about, like, it's just like, dude, the more stories you keep putting out about this guy, the more I want to hang out with him. Uh, just kidding. Okay, so the presidential field is extraordinarily bizarre and very depressing. And, you know, I know there's some, some little concerned troll not even concerned trolls just straight up trolls who constantly harp on the fact that I supported Bernie Sanders what a fucking idiot I was can you believe it it's like no here's the thing I was excited about the movement that was generated of tens of millions of people in this country who were organizing and I wanted to be a part of that moment in time that will probably never be replicated in my entire life it sure as fuck didn't exist before that as far you know as long as I was living so yes eyes wide open I understand exactly who Bernie is who he was I was just kind of excited about that moment that we had to maybe galvanize for something bigger this is so strange to me because you know coming off of the heels of like 2016 everything that happened an entire Biden presidency almost behind us I am so full of just despair, like uh, there's no way to be excited about anything looking at the presidential field at all. My former political heroes, Dennis Kucinich, Cynthia McKinney, I mean, these people that I hoisted up as like renegades and people who were really speaking truth to power and stuff, you know, the articles of impeachment, that was, that was a moment in time that was historic. And I'm never going to take that away from Dennis Kucinich. But like looking now at what he is doing, it is perplexing. And I think it's kind of like the same thing. Like when you grow up, you realize like, oh, yeah, we're just all super fucking flawed humans. Like now I see things for what they are. Eyes wide open, looking forward, no heroes. And so I cannot express that enough. Like when I'm looking at what's happening now. Especially post-COVID, post-Trump, like already how strange the political landscape is and this kind of post-left, whatever the hell you want to call it. It is just it's like everything is just bizarre. It's like Biden is so terrible. Right. Trump is so terrible. Like I can kind of see back in 2008, even though we were super disillusioned because of everything that we thought about nine eleven and the Iraq war and being super radicalized way early on. Like we knew right from the get that Obama was a joke. We went around Oakland and put up the war as peace stickers. And, you know, it was very unpopular and actually very radical to question Obama's presidency at that moment in time.
1: Yeah. From the left.
2: And I kind of <laughs> get it. Looking back now, like how easy and nice it must have been for normies to Be excited about Obama, like looking at Obama, the candidate was actually pretty exciting in retrospect, considering how horrific things have become and how awful things are now politically, like how the just the lack of any candidate who's a young, fresh, like intelligent and like sane, kind of left leaning things like now we don't even have anything remotely similar to that. So like I can see looking back like, oh, wow, it actually made sense. Um, even though he's super fucking creepy now with his playlists and Netflix specials and pretending like he wasn't the war criminal in chief and the drone king, like it's really strange now. But now you look at Biden and Kamala and zero other prospects at all. There's no one, dude. No one. And there isn't even a prime. This is what it kills me, too. There's not a primary. Biden is the pick. So... Marianne Williamson, as much as I do like her for certain things that she's done, what are her and RFK Jr. doing? Because there is no actual primary. And then you have the third-party candidate who jumped in the race, Cornell West, like a super sloppy clusterfuck with the People's Party launch and then moving to the Green Party. And how much did it take the wind out of his sails? And then on top of that, RFK Jr., is a goddamn nightmare and his entire candidacy is such a redox of the Tulsi Gabbard psyop that I can't stand it. And I, and it's so glaringly obvious and I'm just like sitting back being like, how is this happening? How is this happening? And how are people falling for it?
1: Yeah, it is. um, It's interesting. I mean, I guess it's just because Biden is so bad and so alarmingly bad to people that they, they somehow have like, I, I don't know. It's weird to see people being like, Oh my God, the Democrats are going to try to do everything they can to shut out these, these uh, primary opponents. And it's like, well, yeah, like that, they are not there isn't going to be a primary. So like what, like, and, and at first it was like, they're not going to let them hold debates or not. And it's like, why would you think they would let them hold debates? Like they don't even like they, even if there's a Democrat running in the race that they don't like, sometimes they won't like, they'll try as hard as they can to not even let them get in the debate. Like if they were actually having one. <laughs> so it's a, it is a weird expression that people have to, to be acting as if they're surprised or shocked, or this is abnormal. It's like, no, this is what the democratic party will do every time they don't, they won't, they're not going to have They're like, first of all, they would do anything they can to like shut down any type of like primary challenge. Uh, and, but it's, it's weird that people are putting like the cart before the horse and being like, they're not going to let them have a debate. And it's like, why would you think they would let them do that? They're not even going to allow any remotely form of primary challenge to get off the ground. Um, so that was odd to watch people acting as if that was something. It's like, no, that is that is the way that this works. It's a completely rigged game. Um, and so... And I don't know. I mean, I I don't personally care for Marion Williamson. I, I at the top of my head, I can't even remember uh, what it is she did to like really turn me off to her. But I mean, I think RFK Jr. and her are both pretty bad as far as uh, mm-hmm. like people that espouse anything that would be something that I would want to vote for. I mean, but I just have to say, I probably you know I can't see myself getting excited at all about any political candidate in the future of my lifetime at all. Like I, I, th- I it's hard for me to imagine that happening at this point, everything just seems so artificial. And so everybody just says the talking points that people want to hear. None of it just ultimately, none of this stuff really seems to matter uh, anymore. <laughs> well, I guess that's
2: exactly what I, I mean is that the exci- there's such a lack of like it's like none of this is grounded in reality. Presidential politics is so fake. It's a billion-dollar dog and pony show. I'm sorry, it's going to be a multi-billion-dollar dog and pony show every year. It gets more more and more expensive. Yeah, that's what I mean, is like all the people... You have to be a narcissist to run for president. You have to be kind of nuts, you know? Because, like, you know in your heart, yeah, maybe someone's got to do it just to keep the debate going and to show that yeah technically there could be another choice even though we know that the game is so rigged there isn't ever one but like who are the people who really throw their hat in the ring and they're like I'm gonna run for president I guess my thing is like how is anyone excited about anything that's happening right now like yeah I get we're all super desperate and depressed and maybe you kind of need to be excited about something because you need to hold on to something but it's like I'm so disillusioned with politics that I just look at the field and I'm like, this is so depressing and how can anyone rally behind any of these people and like really be like, yeah, we're going to campaign for them. And like, yeah, let's,
1: let's do it. Let's do it. I think there's just so many better ways to, to live. If you want to live in, in a headspace where you're furthering some kind of political good in your mind, doing it via um, canvassing, like making phone calls for campaigns. Like a lot of people do seem, that seems to be like the defaults. Like this is going to be my activist expression. And I I would really discourage people from doing that and instead do something that is actually going to make more of an impact on your local community. Um, And like maybe actually... Try to, you know, do some investigative journalism of your own about local issues. There are definitely local issues. I I do think, still think local elections, local issues, regional issues, there are valid reasons and important reasons to sometimes get involved in political campaigns in that regard. But even on a micro level, so much of it's fake, too. And it is really, it just, it really is soul-sucking how much like political messaging there is, even on like the lowest level issue of like a local election, you know? Um, And that's just the way that it is now. And it, it's going to continue yeah, no to other get co- worse, countries and don't worse do
2: this. Other countries don't do this shit. They don't allow it legally to have just 24 seven campaigning. Yeah. Like there's maybe like one year, maybe I don't even believe that anymore. Where like, okay, if someone gets inaugurated and then like for the rest of the year, maybe we don't, we're not inundated with like presidential politics and like campaign politics, but that it's, it's so all consuming and it just never stops. And it, it's so pointless. I can't stress that enough, how pointless it is. I totally agree with you. Um, What I know that you've been tweeting a lot about this. Talk about RFK and kind of the psyop nature of his campaign. Like what, what is his deal? He's all over the place. Yeah. He's, came up on you know the the vaccine stuff but he is an environmental lawyer like he does have a good track record on fighting for the environment and that's why it's so weird to see him being shepherded into the you know free markets will solve climate change kind of thing and him kind of taking a step back from even his previous rhetoric on climate change and being like yeah yeah yeah, like climate change just all used for control I'm not going to be addressing that in my campaign and it's like oh okay so what are you going to be talking about? Israel, Israel, Israel. Israel,
1: Israel, Israel. <laughs> I mean, it's such a topsy-turvy, weird campaign that he's running. I mean, he's hitting all these different hot-button issues that appeal to very specific people. Like, he's claimed that he thinks the CIA uh, was involved in killing his uncle and his father. And that's really appealed to certain people because it's like seems like such a big a revelation, like this is an actual living relative of the Kennedy family who is saying things that people always wanted to hear someone, you know, big say. And I think that that has a really big impact on people, especially people who are more prone to, you know, believing those things and how important they are. And on some level, I could understand that, uh, but that's not, but you really have to look at the whole spread. Like, You can't look at RFK's individual issues that you like in a vacuum because it does seem like there is some very weird stuff going on with him. I mean, even let's just take for example his his views on Ukraine. He keeps talking about how we need a peace deal. He keeps talking about um, you know how this is going to escalate us into World War III. He's talking, saying a lot of the right things about Ukraine, but if you only go back like two or three years ago, he sounded like a complete straight down the middle normal russia gator liberal a hundred percent his son is currently fighting as part of like a u.s special forces boots on the ground in ukraine against russia his daughter-in-law is in the cia um so i mean i don't know it's it's just a weird thing to be like the cia killed you know my my uncle and my father but like my daughter-in-law's in the CIA and she's like a great person. It's a very, it's just a strange thing. And then like the, the fact that his son is fighting in the war too, it's just odd. Um, And, but that's, I mean, that's just a whole separate thing, but the, his Ukraine views have drastically uh, flipped over time. And for people saying that he's the greatest anti-empire, anti-war candidate who's, who's ever run in, an election before it's just simply not true. I mean, you look at his record, he really doesn't say very much about war at all. In fact, he was very pro Obama and an Obama defender during his presidency and he, and he was hoping for a cabinet appointment actually in the Obama administration. Um so there there's all these to me questions about what is he really up to? I mean, I think the biggest thing is that he is Very much riding on and depending on the energy of like the anti vaccine movement in this country for his primary energy that's keeping him, you know, prominent or noteworthy in this campaign. I mean, his polling uh, reached, I think, something like over 15% or something like that. It was pretty surprising for someone who's running as a Democrat where there's not going to be a primary. So he has achieved a surprising amount of traction and especially in the press uh for his campaign it and I would say the majority of that energy does seem to be from people who are adamantly anti-vaccine who are very immersed in those sort of those covid you know the covid political world I would say most of it's like controlled opposition type of stuff but that, I think those are the people who are keeping his campaign alive to this degree and it's, it's really interesting even to listen to him in depth talk about vaccines. I, you know, I I don't know, very, I stay out of the debates a lot when it comes to like, you know, different vaccines over the years and, and what what they've done, what side effects they've done. I'm not as knowledgeable about that stuff as some other people are, but listening to J- RFK Jr. talk about it, he does seem to be like filled to the brim with like encyclopedic knowledge about all these different vaccines, all the different trials, all the different um, you know, studies that have been done on them. And so it's fascinating to listen to him. So on one hand I was like inclined, I was empathetic to what he was saying when I was listening to him on Rogan and you know, I listened to the I think it was something like 3 hours long and he spent about half of it talking about vaccines. And you know, on some level, like I am very much an advocate for, you know, I am anti-mandate. I don't think anyone should be forced to take the vaccine. I think that that's morally reprehensible. So, there, so there's parts of me where I'm empathetic to the some of the things that he's saying, but when he actually gets into the actual granularity of like his vaccine views, it does seem like If the Children's Health Defense Fund was at one time like a legitimate organization that was really putting out strong uh, information, um, I would be surprised if it's even in that realm now. Because if he's the head of this organization, he is very sloppy and fast and loose with the facts that he's throwing out to the point where he, he clearly has a confirmation bias in a very specific direction. He represents hundreds of clients in these class action style lawsuits against all these different companies. And at a certain point, as I'm listening to this interview, I had to wonder like, is he possibly exploiting these people? Like by creating hysteria about things that maybe should be looked at and scrutinized more, but he's going hyperbolic about his rhetoric in order to win these court cases. And honestly, once my mind got there after listening to him long enough, I can't get out of that headspace anymore. It does seem like there is a strong financial motivation to what he's doing instead of like an altruistic wanting to help children or wanting to help mothers who have kids with autism to what he's doing. And there's also a lot of problematic elements to what he's doing too. This idea that autism is a form of like brain damage uh, that is induced by a vaccine and talking about how there were no autistic people until like, you know, 70 years ago or something that like, they that like, that's like a new thing in society. So it must be caused by some kind of introduction of something. Um, it to me that it does veer into, you know, like a weird, almost like anti autism awareness point of view at a certain point. Cause it's like, There are a lot of uh, like, it's, it is not true that autistic people only started appearing after vaccines were given to people. That's obviously not true, but that is his, one of his core beliefs. Like he really has espoused that, um, he has espoused things like the Spanish flu, uh, one of the first major pandemics that, um, you know, is like historically noteworthy. Uh, he's, he's asserted that that was caused by a vaccine um and his reasoning for that is because most of the people who died from the spanish flu died from like bacterial pneumonia and at a so at a certain point it's like was he saying is he acting as if like there wasn't even like a like a virus during that time period but it turns out what he's referring to was like a completely random um thing that was being passed around there's not very much credibility to it it's it's a total speculative theory that someone threw out there i think like 10 or 15 years ago saying that there was a meningitis vaccine trial being done on some military base in the u.s and that they were trying to say that that's what caused the spanish flu that somehow like wait so are you
2: are you saying that ashkenazi jews were not targeted with this race
1: (laughs) That's what I'm saying. I mean, that yeah. was
2: wild too, because it's like, I, the thing is I am sympathetic to the notion that the U S is or was, or other countries do try to develop crazy shit like that. Like
1: I, that is true, right? Yeah. The, but the concept to, to, in, on paper is right. true. It, that is a real thing. Race specific bio. Right.
2: Right. So everyone was like, oh my God, that's crazy. It's like, well, no, that, that idea is not crazy. What? is interesting is him saying that covid was um engineered to target certain races because that, that is what he said in the clip even though he he says that he wasn't saying that that that's what i took from it and i watched it um so it's just yeah it's like he'll take something that is factual and then just go the next level where it's like super loose and makes it discredited
1: well that's what's so interesting about it. Um I was going back and forth with this guy Sam Husseini who I share some views on with when it comes to like our bioweapons program. Um we differ on some things, but he was like he's like RFK Jr really needs to like you know bring this conversation about bioweaponry into like a credible realm. He needs like why is he talking about throwing all these like random things out and getting caught in all these you know, by saying all these wacky things when he seems to know about, like, the real facts about bio-warfare and stuff, like, he could bring this issue to light. And I was trying to tell him, like, I don't, at this point, I don't think it's a good idea for him to talk about anything that's an important issue to bring to light, because it's just going to be shit-coded by how wacky and how wrong he seems to be on a lot of other issues. I mean, he doesn't just say that um, like cell phones cause brain cancer or can cause brain cancer. He's really leaned into the whole like Wi Fi uh, radiation can like cross your blood brain barrier and give you cancer. And while there are some studies out there to suggest that there is a low level radiation from Wi Fi, he's putting out a lot of stuff where it's like, is this sort of like a trial lawyer? kind of like rhetorical tactic that he's doing to 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 sort of win these lawsuits and gain these grounds legally but like not really in the sense where he's having like a full on scientific examination or ex- exhumation of like what's actually going on here it does seem like that's more what he's doing and part of the reason i think this abby if you go to the children's health to fund website um, health defense website which is his main sort of law firm uh, organization it basically has aggregated on it over 85 articles from the epoch times now now if i was someone who thought that a vaccine had harmed my child or myself and i wanted to get justice and form a lawsuit against a company and i saw that I would be like, no, th- no. Like, I do. This is, this does not seem credible. Even if this guy can win me a lawsuit, something about this seems sketchy. This seems sloppy. And also, it just seems to be sort of weaponized because it's like the Epoch Times coverage on like vaccines and stuff is not, you know, it, even if you take the Fallen Kong thing out of the equation, it's definitely pushing a very specific agenda. And that agenda is a very, hawkish anti-china agenda
2: well it's a u.s cutout, and what's crazy about it is it's not just aggregating those articles which would be bad enough but he has come out on the record and said that he believes the epic times is like the premier like alternative media that people should be following like it's the most cutting-edge truthful
1: yeah he specifically or whatever specifically named them as and i don't know exactly where this comes from uh But he was—I think—he was asked what his favorite media outlet right now is, and he said *Epic Times*. Um, I think that says it all. That's the—that's the thing. It does—it does say it all because even if he's not out there saber rattling against China, you know, as part of his campaign, he said a lot of like yellow peril, weirdly China-focused, xenophobic things about COVID. He's implied that it is a Chinese bioweapon. He said that. He's implied that Chinese military went into the Wuhan lab and like raided it, you know, and like kicked in the doors and 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 done all this stuff to cover it up. He's made a lot of these insinuations that go above and beyond what has, I would say, always been sort of a xenophobic narrative about lab leak, that it was, you know, that that it was done in this Chinese lab. But now the the more mainstream consensus i guess about that is that like there had to have been us and like chinese scientists involved in that if that happened he, when he talks about it it does seem like his focus is more like chinese military bioweapon stuff and that is odd too because someone who claims or who seems to have as much knowledge as he does about all this stuff that wouldn't be the view you would land on so it does, I guess my when I'm saying this, what I mean is that he does seem to have some, some linkage or some association with these anti-China hawks. I don't know of where those connections are made, but the Epoch Times one is disturbing enough because we know that that is some kind of cutout regime change fake media outlet that is, that's clearly having a shitload of influence right now. Um, so- I mean, that that should be a red flag enough uh, for a lot of people who are sort of in the scene of like anti-imperialism, anti-war. Um, but then at the same time, Abby, I think his COVID politics just turn people on so much and they're so wrapped right, up. they're willing into, to overlook it. They're so wrapped up into like the Peter McCollas and all these people that, yeah, they just overlook it. And even some of them overlook his Israel stuff because they are so into his COVID politics Um, I think it just speaks volumes about where people are at politically, too, that like you're so
2: desperate to hold on to something. It's like the that's why I bring it back to Tulsi, because like you're you want to hit those key like reptile brain talking points so much that you adhere to and have based your entire ideology around right now, which is like covidism. That's their fucking politics is covid. Where do you stand on covid? And so that was such a line in the sand for them that that's all that matters. Just like Tulsi saying, you know, hitting the reptile brain about, I don't fucking know what people thought she had to hit the reptile <laughs> yeah. brain, on, like, kept saying World War Three, I guess. But like overlook torture and overlook mm-hmm. all the other crazy stuff, the rampant homophobia and stuff like that. And with RFK Jr., the COVID stuff, you're totally right, overshadows his continuous groveling to Israel so like, w- like farther than Biden. I mean, he is... He is going out there every day saying crazy stuff about Israel, and what I think bothers me the most about it is that people apologize for him and claim that the Israel lobby must be getting to him, right? He would be good on Israel, but the Israel lobby, see, look how crazy they are. They He has to follow orders from them. They have to dictate to him if he thinks he has a chance. It's like why? why do you assume that? Why don't you
1: just assume that these are his beliefs? Yeah, when you that he is a hardcore Zionist, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. He is not, there was no reason for him to lean into Zionism this much. There is no reason, he was already doing it before he got accused of anti Semitism for that Ashkenazi comment you mentioned earlier. He's already doing it long before that. There is nothing to suggest whatsoever that he is under any kind of pressure to perform this way. He is rhetorically running to the right of Biden on the Iran deal in Israel. So yeah, Biden is rhetorically a liar. And there's probably a lot of the things that, you know, maybe they're even trying to kill the Iran deal internally, maybe, you know, who knows what the Democrats are really up to, but rhetorically he's running to the right of Biden rhetorically. And that is really fascinating on, on those two issues. Like those, and those are two pit, really big issues. At that point, this dude is not anti-war. Like what are his anti-war credentials? Even where was he on or Syria? Even like a threat. Where was he on a Libya? Threat to The establishment.
2: It's like, you can't really call this guy a threat to the establishment of all. He's holding over your head is like, Oh yeah. I think my uncle was assassinated. It's like, yeah, so does fucking half the country, dude. That's not crazy. It's not crazy to say you want a peace deal in Ukraine. It's not even crazy to say anything about vaccines, because that's half the country, too. What would be crazy is standing up to Israel. when he goes the complete opposite direction, running into the arms of Rabbi Shmuley and the Zionist Organization of America's president. And he's just repeating talking points from them. And he even went out and called Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib anti-semitic which is, just straight up anti-semitic which is
1: crazy because not even tulsi gabbard did anything that that crazy in that regard she did a lot of other crazy things but i don't i mean that that to me is absolutely beyond the pale to do that i mean it's like once you go in that direction it's like there i don't see how you could come back from that and be credible to anyone who shares views of you, 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 and me, Abby. It's, it's really. Yeah, it's like I don't care how much you hate the squad. Yeah. So, do you
2: agree that they're anti-Semitic for boycotting Netanyahu's exactly. speech and criticizing Israel?
1: Like, okay. Yeah, it's um, it's uh, it's very. We're
2: saying that the Israeli lobby has money and that they influence Washington. Like, wow, what a crazy statement! You're an anti-Semite. Like, I'm sorry, you have no credibility at all.
1: Yeah. Zero. And he, and he really is off the wall i mean like and i do think to say he's a threat to anyone in the establishment at this point there's probably people like in these big pharmaceutical companies who are who actually believe that they want someone like this out there shit coding any criticism of them like and making it all like sort of kryptonite by association to have someone this out there this wacky uh you know sort of joining on that chorus and and i i just i have to wonder about all that it's like how is he a threat to anything at this point um and i don't know i mean it is um it is fascinating to watch him running and what it sort of you know how it makes all these people on the left and people in the anti-war scene all excited and kind of doing mental gymnastics to try to stay on, stay on the, you know, the horse or whatever. I woke up um, this morning. uh, This morning is uh, the 28th. And I had this vague memory of RFK Jr. posting a strange tweet with the numbers 14 and 88 right next to each other. And I swear to God, I woke up this morning thinking, wow, that was a really weird dream. And like within probably 30 to 45 seconds, I picked up my phone and looked at Twitter and I saw somebody, I saw like a ton of people like bringing it to my attention on Twitter, like the exact tweet that I remembered reading, which I thought was a dream. And I'm still sitting here very baffled and just utterly confused. And also it's almost gone to like comic proportions now of what is actually fucking happening. Could first explain what fourteen eighty eight is. Okay, so fourteen eighty eight, you know, like a lot of this neo-Nazi stuff, it's it's sort of barely code. Um, and fourteen eighty eight, uh and this is from the SPLC's website, so you know, SPLC
2: yeah, take that out of the does a
1: lot of dumb shit. They put out a lot of hyperbolic shit, but this this is more or less accurate that fourteen eighty eight Uh, the 14 stands for the 14 word slogan coined by David Lane, um, who is serving a 190 year sentence for his part in the assassination of a Jewish talk show host. And that Jewish talk show host, I believe is actually what the Oliver Stone movie uh, talk radio, which is based on a famous play is based off of this actual real life event. Um, And the, the actual 14 words is we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. Um, 88 stands for Heil Hitler as H is the eighth letter of the alphabet. Um, So like a lot of these neo-Nazi cunts, you know, they, 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 they signal, they dog whistle, and they've been doing this forever where they're, they know that to a certain extent, open signaling of neo-Nazi white supremacy Doesn't take you very far. This is part of the technique that neo Nazis have used to sort of weasel their way into different political movements, and also find, you know, test the waters to see how um, friendly these larger political apparatuses will be to blatant neo Nazism. And as we've seen over the last several years, a lot of surprisingly big organizations have been very uh, tolerant of it. Have let it. I mean, Jack Posobiec. For some reason before he you know was just turned into like an obvious um like neocon errand boy of roger stone he was tw- tweeting all these things all the time making jokes where he'd say something 14 something and then 88 something later in the tweet so it's well known among people who especially people who focus on like domestic white supremacist groups in this country of what that means and it's been in the pop pu- Popular lexicon for so long now that if you're plugged into, especially like Twitter politics, as soon as you see that, you know what it means. You know, so what was very, very surreal was after basically RFK Jr. has been doubling down, tripling down, quadrupling down on his extreme Zionist credentials to the point, like you already mentioned, saying Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib are anti-Semites, saying things like as crazy as that the Israel is uniquely humanitarian in the Middle East because they only go after military targets. Like, ba- and and he's basically running to the right of a, of Biden now on, on Israel. I mean, that is one of the craziest parts about all this. So at his event with Rabbi Shmuley, you know, he goes through a whole litany of completely trash Zionist talking points, pushes a bunch of Hasbro, um, and then also uh, shuts down someone who asked him a question about the journalist who was killed by the IDF like last year, that same one that you confronted Anthony Blinken about. Um, or am I remembering that correctly that you actually brought Shireen Abu Yes. Yes. So he, he And they shut down someone trying to ask about her. They don't even, like, respond to it.
0: Where the terrorists are hiding behind civilians and where the, everybody is involved in bomb-making. And those bombs are destined to kill civilians, to be strapped on men, women, and children, and kill civilians in Israel. Israel is unique in the Mideast for saying we're only going to attack military targets. And they're very, very disciplined about doing so. Palestine, the Palestinian Authority, in contrast, follows a long tradition of deliberately targeting civilians. So anybody, and not only that, but they have a pay-to-slay policy. That is the official policy of of the Palestinian Authority. If you kill a Jew, not a, not a, uh, not a, a member of the IDF, if you kill any Jew you are going to get awarded with pay for life. He took the side of Hitler during World War II. I don't think I have ever heard a major American political figure express so kaleidoscopically support for Israel in the historical context as what we just heard. That was unprecedented.
2: (laughs) Yeah, to be honest, I don't even have words
0: that a man who just said that could be called an anti-Semite.
1: So that's just a flavor of how crazy doubling down on Zionism uh, RFK has been doing. So then it's awfully strange to literally a day after this, he is posting things like this. Since the assassination of my father in 1968, Candidates for president are provided Secret Service protection, but not me. Typical turnaround time for pro forma protection requests from presidential candidates is 14 days. After 88 days of no response and after several follow-ups by our campaign, the Biden administration just denied our request. Now, there's a little bit more to the tweet since a lot of people do these long-winded like essay length tweets i'm not going to read the rest but on one hand a lot of people are taking this at face value and being like this is really fucked up like why doesn't he have secret service protection like his dad and his uncle were killed by you know the government etc and then there's other people who are like what the fuck is going on like this is how is this an accident it's not like other even jack Pasobic was more clever at times when he would put the 14 and 88 somewhere in his tweet." 14 hyphen days period after 88 hyphen days. Like the first tweet I saw that someone was bringing this to my attention said the most general, and this is from a guy named cons uh moleman on Twitter who said the most generous possible explanation. Is he's got a groeper Nazi on his comms team <laughs> because I, I mean, why would he do this much? trying to pr- prove his Zionist pro-Israel credentials, and then how could he possibly accidentally tweet something that is worded this way? I mean, what is your take on this, Abby? Because it is, it's impo- Like, that explanation I just read you might be one of the more l- realistic ones, because I, I don't, otherwise I don't see how this is possible. Like, how could he not know what he's tweeting? I mean, what do you think? I honestly am completely
2: baffled that i i don't know i mean that is the most generous explanation of what this is is that there's some sort of groiper guy on his campaign stuff but if that's the case <laughs> yeah. how? how is that possible that there's like coded white supremacism coming out in messaging and at the same time you have this guy doubling down as the most extreme zionist i would argue across both oh, fields but i, I mean- I don't hear anyone talking about this kind of stuff. I don't hear anyone, any politician, actually going as far as he is to to assert just, Zionism. Hanging out with uh, Rabbi Shmuley day to, day to day. I mean, and Rabbi Shmuley even said, he was like, this is historic. This is a historic moment. Like, we've never heard someone be this staunchly Zionist. Like, this promising about his allegiance to israel like he's going back to the roots of like what what our relationship should be with with america i mean it is really out there i mean but to your one quick comment too apparently in the same thread that the guy told you about this apparently i was looking at it and someone was like yeah he changed his mind on sirhan sirhan too and said that it was actually because his Dad supported Israel is why Sirhan Sirhan killed
1: What? Him. Okay, that see so that is really yeah. surreal because he's been the one to actually lend some credibility to the idea that Sirhan Sirhan was somehow a tool of some other forces. And you know, I'm not it's not easy for me to believe in anything having to do with like MK Ultra or Manchurian candidate style assassins. But I was inclined to be like, okay, maybe there's something there's something to this if his own father was killed by this guy and he's trying to like rehabilitate his image and actually meeting with him in prison. Like that was in some ways that seemed like it might have been like an important thing to explore. And but now it's like I cannot trust anything this motherfucker has ever said. Like this has gone so off the rails that it's like it, it, the only way I can describe it is some kind of shit-coding operation. Uh, shit-coding, having skepticism about the vaccines, which I think is a 100% valid position to take. Shit-coding, the idea of... uh, I don't even know what else. I mean, he's even brought up the 2001 anthrax attacks in his books, like I mentioned. Um, So I don't... I, all I can <laughs> say is, back to your point, is that he is now running as a more pro-Israel candidate, at least the way he's signaling, than Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, and Ron DeSantis. It has gone far beyond (laughs) him going to the right of the Democrats on a position about Israel, far beyond. He is now arguably the most pro-Israel candidate running in the race, including the entire Republican field. Now, I'm sure on some level, maybe underneath the rhetoric, that's not necessarily accurate, but the rhetoric that he's putting out is more pro-Israel than anybody in the Republican field. And I'm, I mean, do would you say that that's true?
2: Yes, and, and now the coded anti-Semitic stuff, like at the same time doubling down on Zionism, it seems so... Overwhelmingly psyopy that I don't I don't know how to decipher it really like what is actually happening here and what
1: is happening with is Dennis Kucinich just a hired gun right now like I had I used to have an overwhelming amount of respect for him but what <laughs> what is he doing involving himself with this campaign I just found out that he was his campaign
2: manager a couple weeks ago and I was floored I don't know what he is doing uh, I was pretty surprised to see that I guess I shouldn't be that surprise given you know his support for tulsi gabbard but it it was still a little bit disappointing
1: i mean mean, it's more than a little bit disappointing because it's it's like if he's his campaign manager he's being paid by him you know it's like it's 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 a paid job so i do gotta wonder and and it does take me back to like the era when dennis kucinich was regularly appearing on fox news and like was he a paid contributor to fox news i don't know what his Ethics are at this point, but it's very shocking and disappointing. Um, and uh, you know, as we have been with a lot of different people over the years, I'm I'm at this point completely baffled. And look, he was actually a Kamala Harris donor and supporter only two or three years ago. This is not someone who has a trustworthy track record of even having rhetoric that's anti-war. This is a, this is brand new. And I guess it's okay now for people to just come in with a huge track record of being actually a pro-war neoliberal, like way late into the game and just start saying like, we need peace talks between Ukraine. This is going to start World War III, etc." I mean, I guess people just do not question the validity of that. I mean, I'm watching it thinking not, I can't trust anything he's saying on Ukraine. It, and it is at this point, it's you're not really taking a risk by doing that i I don't think, especially if you're in this position in the race. so I mean it's it's absolutely strange um and yeah, and look, yeah, the epoch Times associations that he has uh where he actually promoted the epoch Times as being one of the best websites or journalistic outlets, plus the children's health Defense defense fund being so wrapped up in this like controlled opposition. Basically, what seems like an arm of the deep state media ecosystem, like Epoch Times and all these weird anti-China news channels, is highly questionable. Highly questionable. You know, I've started this discussion about him saying maybe he's, maybe he's exploiting his own clients, and this is where his motives mostly are—to line his own pockets, to act like he's sort of this heroic guy who's fighting Big Pharma, but as reality kind of like a trial lawyer you know mentality where it's just like you're taking money you're really just there to like generate hysteria and make money i at this point i think it's far worse than that and more bizarre than that and i don't i do not fucking know what to make of it and i'm sick of hearing people saying well they killed his father and his his dad so he you know he has to make sure he says things and has to be in line it's like well no that does not add up this is not making sense um, so
2: I, am it sure does not make sense at all, Robbie. And now I don't. I I I already felt really strange vibes coming from him and all the messaging that he was emanating. But today just put it at a whole other level where I almost need to like just see what happens yeah. now. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, did he delete the tweet and then say like, "Oh my god"? No. I mean, because this just no, happened. He delete shit. Okay, dude. I. This is insane, man. Let's talk about Ron DeSantis because we haven't even touched on the Republican yeah. field. I mean, look, I mean, I never really knew much about Ron DeSantis other, like, other than what was on paper and how fascist his policies were in Florida. And then, like, now he's really putting himself out there because he's running, and he's just so uncharismatic and such a dud. And you know, it's just, it's just comical, like how much he he is getting crushed in the polling and how much I think he will get crushed by Donald Trump. Not that I'm rooting for either of them. Obviously it's going to be a fucking nightmare for different reasons. Whoever wins if Biden does not win. Um, And that's really scary. It's like who, there is no (laughs) good outcome here, no matter what. But DeSantis is just, I mean, he's so hardcore. We've gone over this before, you know, that he would, he's like the perfect neocon Dream. I mean, diverting all the attention onto this like anti woke agenda, divide and conquer, the strategy of tension stuff that he's done so well. At the same time, I mean, he would just completely ram through whatever regime change plans are left in Latin America because he's just such a reactionary. And he would just do the bidding of all the craziest neocon wings um, that exist. He's such a horrible person for so many reasons. Um, and that's why it's so strange to see people like Russell Brand, who, god damn, I mean, <laughs> this is a guy who just up until a couple months ago, we were told was ostensibly on the left. Ostensibly on the left. Meanwhile, he is taking photos with Donald Trump Jr. You know, I don't know why people thought he was on the left, I guess, because he like waxed philosophy about religion. He always was super smarmy to me. He was a complete womanizing asshole. Um, I remember 10, 15 years ago when Peta Lindsay was running for the PSL candidacy um, for president um, and he had her on his show. And by the way, Charles Davis worked for him. I think we talked about that. Another spook, spook operator, which is also just weird that 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 guy was working for Russell Brand that long ago. But anyway, he just all he did was mock pay to Lindsay's tits and was just saying all these sexually demeaning things to her while she was like trying to give this serious political talk. And then just hearing about his womanizing. I mean, that he would brag about having sex with like 10 women every day, like 10 different women. And he had like a harem of women. I mean, I'm sorry. I just don't think that he's he's a good guy. Like, I don't care, actually, what his politics ever were. I never liked him because I just thought he was disgusting, you know? So when he kind of started dabbling in politics and, like, wanting to be part of the conversation, I just never really was interested in, in um in what he had to say, I guess. I never really listened to his show. So I guess it's unsurprising to me, but it's just funny how, how much we were told, browbeaten, about how this guy was a leftist, how he was on our side, and um, that we should listen to him. And, oh, what do you know, Robbie? Just another one funneling everyone into right-wing talking points under the notion that, no, he's really just a, a free-thinking liberal. Even his show is called, like, Live Free. Like, it's all about free thought. And his whole interview, I think with Tucker Carlson and Ron DeSantis, I didn't watch the Tucker Carlson one. I'd rather shoot myself in the head. But, I sadly, I did watch the DeSantis one for this podcast. And I was, like, hoping... That the takes on it were wrong, you know, because, you know, sometimes people on Twitter just like to clip maybe 30 mm-hmm. seconds. And then, you know, someone did that to me, like they, they clipped just like 10 seconds of what I said without the context of everything around it. And it's like, no, I don't like to do that. I like to watch the actual full thing and see if this is really correct. And lo and behold, it was just a fawning interview with Ron DeSantis, not one critical question at all. And just he looked gleeful. I mean, he looked enchanted. He was super excited to be talking to him and it was pretty gross stuff, Robbie.
1: It was pretty hard for me to even comprehend what I was watching cuz I, I I even though I think Russell Brand is a pretty much a has-been at this point, his his movie, you know, acting career, his comedy career has kind of gone into the toilet and you know, I've sort of seen him as kind of trying to grift or, or chase the dollar in the scene of politics, kind of copying Jimmy Dore and kind of just doing that, that type of political show to try to gain an audience, which he has gained an audience. And it seems like he's just gained people in his audience who are just like all similar to Jimmy Dore fans, sort of right wing reactionaries claiming that they're like not right wing reactionaries. So it's a weird, you know, it's one of those another weird things. But um, I, too, was very shocked. I mean, I would say three months ago, um, I had a Media Roots radio listener reach out to me because I had already kind of gone over Russell Brand's weird descent into like stupid right-wing talking points. And I remember reviewing or commenting on his, Russell Brand's review of the Top Gun movie, the new one with Tom Cruise. And in it, He's basically saying that it's amazing and brave that Tom Cruise's character wore a Taiwanese flag and the studio pressure from China tried to get rid of it. So he was like going into these weird areas where I'm like, this is really strange that Russell Brand is like signaling this way specifically now, talking about like how we need to like basically implying like of how this was such like a an achievement of a movie because it like stood up to China and it was like pro-American and pro-military. And it was like just a bunch of good old fun. And, you know, w- w- like it was not like a woke movie and all this shit. And I, I you know, I commented on it saying like, this is absolutely insane that he's talking this way. And I would say within a day, I got a very thoughtful, long-winded message from a, a listener of ours. who has been a listener for many years saying, Robbie, I think you're, you know, you really misinterpreted brand here. Like, He's really doing like a biting British humor kind of almost like sarcastic rant about this like this is kind of what British humor is like like it's it's very sarcastic and maybe you didn't maybe you thought it was serious but it wasn't and I was like you know so it's just started being like you know I I'm actually like pretty versed in British comedy like I've been I've been a fan of some of them were like, you know, hard to understand British comedy to American audiences for a long time, like thick of it, um, like, you know, that kind of stuff. So I was trying to trying to basically convince him that he was wrong. And he was kind of like, oh, you know, it, it's he, I wasn't able to convince him. Okay. But right after this Ron DeSantis interview came out, I get a message from the same listener out of the blue saying like, you were completely right about everything um and he's like th- and he was like and thank you guys for not being like like these people. So I just thought that was kind of fascinating that it took this guy at least a couple months but at least he f- eventually came around to like seeing the reality of the situation. But I think that also speaks to a level of People don't want to believe this thing. They want to take it face value that people like Jimmy Dore or Russell Brand are progressives who are just renegades, who aren't right-wing or aren't right-wing reactionaries in any way, shape, or form, that they get unfairly maligned that way. They're misunderstood. And I do think it takes people a while sometimes to process or reorient their brains in the direction of reality, where it's like, at a certain point, you can't keep saying that. You can't keep... I mean, I still see people saying Glenn
2: Greenwald is on the left, and it's like, what what makes you actually think that, though?
1: I mean, and that's the danger here, is if there are people susceptible to right-wing reactionary thinking, like, let's just say people in their audiences, who are being dragged down and steered in a certain direction without even realizing it, that is dangerous, because a lot of their fans are people who are, I would say, smarter than the average person who consumes media. Smarter than the average like person who mm-hmm. watches Fox News, who watches CNN. And so that, to me, speaks to a level of danger to this. It's like if it takes people that long to be able to reorient themselves to what's really going on and see it in front of them, it's kind of scary to think about how, you know, again, it speaks to this larger – has is there a whole agenda that has been sort of – you know, that these people have been part of to like actually just deliberately steer people to the right. And I would say, yes. And why they're doing it, if they're being paid to do it, if they are themselves right-wing reactionaries, it's all sort of up for debate. But I think the if the net result is that, and it's literally taking someone who listens to our podcast several months to, to finally come around to see what's going on, that's kind of, that's a really dangerous thing. I think it's very dangerous. Well, I think that I think that what's happening is that
2: it's not cool to say you're right-wing, right? It's not cool to come out and be like I'm a right-winger, I'm a reactionary. So even I think that to people like Tim Pool, of course, his utility only, the reason that he's so explosively popular with a lot of right-wingers and MAGAs and libertarians is that he is he calls himself a liberal, right? A questioning liberal who just Agrees with everything the right wing says and says the left has gone too far and he's still a critical thinker and he's still independently minded. It's not cool to just come out and be like, Look, I'm actually right wing now. Um, that you don't have any utility whatsoever in this space doing that because there's so many hugely popular right wing accounts that dominate everything um, all of the podcast platforms, all of the YouTube shows, Fox News, I mean, all, radio. Everyone who dominates those spaces is right wing, just openly so. So I think that to be someone like Russell Brand, you have to be, you have to brand yourself as something else ideologically, some like Glenn Greenwald as well. Um, Otherwise, where do you fit in? Um, So that, that's what's happening. It's like Russell Brand knows that it's not cool to be like, hey, I'm conservative. But that's exactly what his trajectory is. When you're just going out there buying into the woke hysteria, anti woke hysteria, that's what you're doing.
1: Yeah. I mean and and I mean, as we know, the whole anti wokeism thing really does go back to like the roots of the domestic policy prism of neoconservatism. I mean, that's Absolutely. It's it's not not even like the more hardcore conservatives were you know, they were racist and bigoted and like going after progressivism, but not in the specific way neocons were, where neocons were specifically targeting like college campus activists and then and that, and that's, it's just, we're just experiencing a repeat of it today. And that's, what's remarkable about this. I mean, you re- you search for the word neocon in Twitter right now, for example, and the majority of people acting like they're against neocons are neocons themselves, like by any you know shape of the definition and it, that to me is really fascinating so it's like this game being played where it's like people know that certain words and terms and phrases are taboo now and we need to act like those things are you know sort of old school or part of the establishment but we're actually different from that i mean that's the whole strategy is to act like they are anti-establishment in some form so one of the ways it is be like fuck the neocons you know like Tucker Carlson or or whatever.
2: Well, even Trump, like like what we know, Trump talks about yeah. Comments. It's like, I mean, it's just it's cartoonish. It is,
1: it is very cartoonish.
2: Um, and DeSantis, going back to RFK Jr., he actually recently floated the idea that he wanted to appoint RFK Jr. to like the CDC or FDA. Yep. And then everyone was up in arms and they're like, oh, my God, you would appoint this like pro abortion. I mean, probably he doesn't even believe really in abortion anyway. I don't believe RFK on anything that he's saying, but he immediately reneged. And he was like, no, of course, I'm only going to like appoint pro-life GOP people. But it just shows you the um, ideological unity on a lot of this stuff with Ron DeSantis that he would be comfortable with someone like RFK Jr. I mean, he's he's just a total fascist and he's like, "Okay, I would fold this guy in. He's not a threat at all. Um, and, you know, it is interesting going back to what you said about how there's an effort, a deliberate effort, not just from the political establishment, it's the alt media spaces, like Twitter, Twitter is not alt media, but like the, um, call in crowd of like the David Sachs, you know, boosting DeSantis as if he is cool. And now you have people like Russell Brand doing the same thing. So what what is this weird effort to boost him as like some sort of counterculture guy? Um, That's really strange. Why didn't Russell Brand hit him on literally anything? It's like, okay, I'm not opposed to interviewing right wingers. I'm not opposed to debating right wingers. If you feel confident that you can do that and you can crush them. On talking points, like all power to you. I, I really support that effort. The problem is Russell Brand just gave him an open platform to spew complete nonsense and didn't ask him one critical question. Um, so what is the sycophant interview supposed to teach us? Because Brand, when he interviewed Tucker Carlson, he was like, the right and left need to come together to fight the establishment like power and it's like well this is the establishment though like what are you talking about man and it's like what do you mean uniting left and right so you're a leftist russell like how where where's your boosting of leftists and movements and organizing and activism like where is it man like what are you talking about
1: once out of like uh, like i don't even remember like in the last year at some point that's it though i mean he might have brought on like corno west too but again it's like That's not, it it does almost seem like he's just throwing a bone out there so that he could say that he's not steering people in a right-wing direction. I mean, and just going back to DeSantis really quickly, his, all of his anti-establishment credentials, Abby, come from his supposed COVID policies. And I say supposed because they're not actually his. He was actually praising Anthony Fauci after the pandemic. So this 180 flip that he did. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come from mm-hmm. him. It comes from somebody who's handling him. 100%. And it I believe that pro, you can trace it back at least on the surface to the Brownstone Institute, uh Jay Bhattacharara, the guy who's like really, you know, part of that institute. He's like a Stanford academic think tanker guy. He's he's in his government. He sits on one of his health boards. And it does appear that somebody sort of reached out to him and's like, you need to, it's you know, take this position because we believe it's going to be a value valuable position and political block for the Republican Party in some way, shape, or form. And that block is valuable beyond just Republican politics, Abby, because it really does tap into the pseudo anti establishment system. If you're if you have a guy who's virtue signaling all this anti-COVID policy stuff, it's almost like in a way, there are people out there who probably see Ron DeSantis as some like stealth like Alex Jones like patriot guy who believe in all the other conspiracies about neocons, but somehow that's the one that got them and kind of put them into this mind this headspace where they believe that you know, regardless of all his other establishment points of view, like this is really renegade and like super important. And I do think that there is evidence to suggest that there are, you know, really powerful people in this country who want to exploit that political block for some future agenda moving forward. It's not to create some alternate lane of alternative health or anything like that. It's it's to route people into different forms of right-wing politics that are pro-establishment. I think that's uh, clearly true.
2: Yeah, I mean, let's we should play a little clip from Brand's um, ass-kissing interview with Ron, so you can see what we're talking about here.
0: What is evident even after just uh, uh, this limited amount of time in your company is that you are a competent orator, that you are a successful politician, that you are very appealing, that you've succeeded in Florida.
2: Brand's interview was just so cringe and saying that he succeeded in florida what did he succeed at i mean he has this anti-abortion ban that's medieval and comparable to the worst human rights in other countries um which is just it just makes the premise of our foreign policy so much more funny about like how we advance human rights right and we have just medieval shit happening in places like florida so yeah so Desantis is polling around 12 percent which is Interesting. I mean, given that RFK is pulling like twenty percent or something in the Democratic field. I think that's really interesting. Fifteen to twenty. Okay. And then Trump is well over fifty percent still. And then this other guy, Vivek, um Ramanasi, who you're gonna talk about, is actually pulling pretty high as well, yeah. comparable to DeSantis. This is a guy that kind of popped up out of nowhere. Um, last point, and I, w- I want you to talk about him because I don't know anything about this guy, but last point about DeSantis is I love how everyone, at least in our spaces, just calls him like Gitmo yeah. Ron now. I love that this story that Mike Preisner, my husband broke, is now just branding this motherfucker for the rest of his life to anyone who's actually paying attention. He is a torturer. He oversaw torture at Gitmo. I love I love, love, love that he is just has this now hanging over his head. Um, and I hope he never gets away from it. I hope that everyone just constantly pushes him on this. That's the last thing I'll say about DeSantis, just unbelievable stuff going on. Who is this other guy though? Because I have seen nothing about him. Well, at
1: all. I mean, the interesting thing is I wasn't seeing anything about him until maybe about six months ago. So his name is Vivek Ramaswamy, um, I believe he uh, is of Indian descent. And, you know, we've seen, and I don't know if there's any kind of pattern or actual something to this, but we've seen several other prominent people getting into the Republican race who have also been of Indian descent in the Republican Party. And that seems to be more common than like someone of, you know, uh, more, you know, anything beyond very light skin color uh, Hispanic descent as far as like a Republican candidate. And I, I, I don't know. I'm just bringing that up. Cause it's kind of fascinating to think about that. You know, how many times have we actually seen someone with like, you know, someone with darker colored skin, who's running as like a Hispanic candidate in the Republican party. Like, I can't even remember uh, that happening. Can you? So, no. so it, that in and of itself is sort of fascinating to think about that there, it does seem to be like something about there's like an Indian sort of right-wing you know something that is seemingly marketable within the republican party i mean nikki haley and being another example of that um who's uh, what's that one guy um she's definitely white passing, she is um, bobby jindal is probably the last person i could think of but that's kind of besides the point the interesting thing about this guy is he's extremely well educated um seemingly also very wealthy and resourceful. I mean, this is what was most noticeable about his campaign when he right when he launched it or right when I started seeing stuff from him, it was all very high production values, excellent comms team, excellent social media presence team, firing on all cylinders promotion that was clearly very very expensive. Um, you know, not just the production values but the coordination and the team behind it and the reach that he had. A lot of money seems to be behind this. And just from the skill level of that promotion of himself, it o- it appears to be like more expensive and coordinated than Donald Trump's campaign, than Ron DeSantis's campaign signaling and many other of these Republicans. So that was immediately stood out to me. I was like, this is really fascinating. Like how did this guy get all these resources together so quickly and get this much traction And he immediately started getting traction with Libertarians, Abby, Um, sort of even dropping things like Ron Paul, um, you know, I think he even mentioned the Federal Reserve. So I don't know if this guy is another Peter Thiel um, guy, but he is part of like a a Wall Street hedge fund. Um, So like there may be some kind of... uh, you know, something going on there, but he he's like a tech VC guy. He's another one of those guys. So I don't know if there's any connection whatsoever between him and uh, Peter Thiel. Um, but he has uh there's loose connections to him. I mean, he's the co-founder and executive chairman of Strive Asset Management, an Ohio-based management firm. Um, and it raised about $20 million and included donations from Peter Thiel, J.D. Vance, and Bill Ackman. So I would say that this almost does seem to be like a repeat of Blake masters, but like this guy is like, I think he's poised to be like the next, if not in this election, because I I think it's like too late, but possibly like the next front runner in like the next Republican election cycle. And not only that, Abby, he's getting a ton of traction among like actual paleo conservatives. They're, they're getting on their knees and sucking their, his Dick, kissing his ring for saying all the right things about big government. Um, and it is fascinating to watch. And I, the Works. most fascinating part, overall, is that he sounds audibly, vocally, like a QVC host or t- televangelist, or both combined. He, he sounds completely phony. Like that's all I can. You just have to hear his voice to understand what I mean. And so that's all I really have to say about him. I don't know if you have any comment.
2: Let's play a little. Let's play a little something so people can hear what the hell
0: this dudes up to. Recent weeks, I offered unprecedented detail on exactly how we would shut down the administrative state, the anatomy of how we would dismantle the U.S. Department of Education and reorganize some of those functions into the Department of Labor under vocational training while shutting down the rest, giving money back to the states and to the people, how we would shut down the FBI, taking those thirty five thousand employees and breaking them into two categories, The 20,000 who actually should find honest work in the private sector and get out of government versus the 15,000 special agents and investigators on the front lines who could be reorganized into the U.S. Marshals. So, Robbie, everyone
2: has had their take on Oppenheimer. I haven't heard a movie getting this much feedback in a long, long time. So for the Barbie movie and Oppenheimer to come out in the same weekend is pretty good strategy from Hollywood, baby. Pretty good strategy to pump these movies out. Double feature. Everyone's going crazy. Everyone's well, going nuts. But <laughs> the revisionist history about World War II, as well as the anti-woke hysteria surrounding the Barbie movie. I will give a disclaimer that I have not seen either. I have not seen either movie, but I have plenty to say about nuclear weapons. So have you seen either? Um,
1: only Oppenheimer. Um, and I'll just say, I, I think okay. it's obvious good. that the Barbie movie, you know, marketing campaign is responsible for like the Barbenheimer double featured thing. I can't imagine that the people who are behind getting Oppenheimer out, of Christopher Nolan, like ever wanted that association. Because <laughs> let's just say, uh, I was going to say, Barbenheimer. Oppenheimer is the most Oscar-baity, uh, Oscar-best picture compatible movie that Christopher Nolan has done. And uh, maybe not by far, but second, you know, second being Dunkirk. Uh, this is, it, it's it's his biggest volley yet to be like, you know, I'm already like the biggest, cl- highest clout director in Hollywood really right now besides Spielberg. Um, you know, I, I, I would say that's probably true. So this is like my attempt to get an Oscar to sort of enshrine myself in that historical lexicon of cinema forever too. And I think he's, I mean, seems pretty poised to do that. Um, I can't imagine a movie coming out this year that's going to be more Oscar caliber sort of best picture contender. So that's, that's what I think it means on a, on a, on a movie level, like in the larger scheme of like movie culture Um, on a political level, there's a lot to unpack there, but there's also not a lot to unpack there. And by that, what I mean is he, he avoided And found clever ways to avoid even showing you. Like there's actually a scene in the movie where Oppenheimer himself, after the bombs are dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, like months after the war is over, sitting down and watching like an educational warning film about what nuclear weapons can do. And I think he's like hiding in the audience or something and maybe trying not to be noticed. And they're talking about all of the different Horror, horrific things that happened to the japanese people um who people who are in the very middle of the blast radius and they're going through these things and on the screen it seems like it's showing actual war crime footage or like you know like footage of japanese people like post the the bomb drop like 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 basically like photos of dead bodies and you just see like people in the audience in this you know little scene in the movie watching it on the screen and reacting like horrified to it and upset but it doesn't show anything um there's only one little scene in the movie where it's Oppenheimer having like a seemingly like an overwhelming sense of regret like directly after the bombs dropped in the form of like a sort of juxtaposing his hero worship, like being cheered for, for basically like they, you know, his team of scientists at Los Alamos sort of cheering him on for basically being responsible for quote unquote winning the war, even though really nobody knew that at the time. And then like he's dreaming in his mind about like the flash bulbs of like people taking pictures of him being like the white hot flashes of like an actual nuke dropping and then like it almost feels like there's a nuke dropping like while he's being cheered on and it shows him accidentally stepping into a charred human body like on the ground like he like almost like a he stepped into like a um like it's that's that's the only visual in the movie out of the three hour runtime that show that actually visually shows you the human impact of the devastation of a nuclear bomb so that so there was a very deliberate choice made to not even show you the devastation to sort of sanitize that even though it's an R-rated movie they could have shown you some really horrifying shit that was not shown and you know I think that I don't you know I don't know what Christopher Nolan's politics are I can't imagine he's that progressive of a guy but I I mean they wanted to I think that they wanted to make it seem as if uh this was a very bad thing in a lot of ways, but it was, you know, all's basically the neoliberal talking point that it was necessary. And mm-hmm. even though there was commentary in on that talking point in the movie, sort of examining it a little bit, it never really went any deeper than like, well, that is actually like accurate. Like that, like that talking point, there's a couple scenes where it's sort of like well, how do we know that they're not going to surrender? How do we, you know, that kind of stuff? But that never is resolved as being like, well, we fucking did it anyways, and this talking points wasn't true, but we use it as an excuse. Like that's never established. It's just sort of that's left out there as like, well, that is probably true. We had to do it. Um, so that's that's interesting. I mean, as a political movie, it's not. I would say it's not even particularly that offensive uh, to me for someone who has the feelings I do about Hiroshima, because it it did a lot to avoid it, to avoid a lot of the things I think that, you know, people would probably want out of a movie like this who are coming from our perspective. Um, but I mean, Cillian Murphy, fucking amazing, amazing acting job. I mean, there was a couple minutes in the beginning where I was like I feel like I can kind of hear his Irish accent I'm not buying this and like within like 5 minutes I was like he's he's going to win an I mean he should win an Oscar for best actor like this is an amazing riveting performance just he's doing um supporting cast was okay but I mean look if you're going into this expecting like a Chris Nolan level spectacle and you just want to just have a fun movie experience this is not the movie it is Three hours of heavy, heavy talking and the actual bomb drop scene is very fucking underwhelming. Like he might as well have used CGI because he should have. It was very, very anticlimactic, like in terms of what we saw. It's so interesting how these directors managed to stay
2: relatively apolitical in a three hour movie with heavy yeah. dialogue surrounding one of the most politicized like myths that underpins American empire. That's fascinating.
1: Well, it is fascinating. And I think part of the way he was able to, cause it's like Oscar movies do need to have politics. Like you can't, like I would say most Oscar bait movies, except for talking about like the hurt locker, which, you know, I guess people in the Oscar, <laughs> the Academy thought that was very political and deep or whatever. I don't, I think like leaning into politics is actually what they like and what, gets sort of people's, you know, the more intellectual crowd sort of engaged in these kind of movies. And so to get around kind of what you're talking about, I forgot to mention that there is a heavy amount of the story. I would say almost the majority of the story is about how his past leftist and communist associations came back to haunt him in a way where it was like, he was hero, heroized or like made to be this hero for like, a small window of time by like the U S government. And then he was like, basically like they try to ruin his reputation, you know, during the McCarthy era or like even during Truman, you know, that's kind of when the, the red scare started. So um that, and they, oh, but then they okay. also stayed apolitical about like that. There wasn't anything in the movie that was commenting on right. communism or socialism. It was more like, look how intense this climate is that like, like he was just martyred, yeah. Like
2: just more personal yeah. about him, and like
1: it was that's that's what they did. Mm-hmm. It was all about him and the complexities of like what this tormented mind was like, how arrogant he was, and I guess in the end, the probably the only really good thing they did was they never really made him out to be like a good person. I mean, you were kind of left with this feeling that he just wanted to be first because he could be. And he took that opportunity and then right. whatever regret or pushback he had afterwards made absolutely no difference whatsoever. in like the history of right. the way things played out. Um, so it's got, it was kind of a cold right. movie in that sense. And yeah, it wasn't a movie that I, I think is going to be looked back on as an excuse for why we needed to drop the bomb and like a way to enshrine American empire in history. So I'm glad that it wasn't that, But you know, it's for sure problematic to not really take the opportunity to show any of like the Japanese uh, death toll or anything like that. But they also don't show any Nazis. They don't show any battle footage of World War II whatsoever. It's just all being discussed, like newspaper headlines being shown.
2: It's just all like, yeah, yeah, like all behind the scenes stuff. That's really interesting that they chose to do that. I mean, I it I dread watching it because it's really tough to slog through a three-hour film but I will watch it because I am interested in what you're saying and I, and I have been wanting to see it um and a couple of my friends went to go see it on opening day and I was just like well let me know if it's if it has good commentary about nukes and they were like of course it's going to they're like because he infamously said how he regretted it and I was like I, I wouldn't be so sure about that Um, I would, it's hard for me to believe that Hollywood would be like pumping up a movie this hard. So, yeah, I mean, it's very unsurprising what you're saying and yeah, well, definitely excited to see it, but it is interesting. The renewed debate about nukes that it has caused. It's, I mean, every, just the articles that you put in the doc are hilarious, dude, from the establishment, like the papers of record, Washington Post, New York Times, everyone's putting out the reassurance that, yes, the nukes sucked, Robbie. Yeah, I was really regretful that we had to do that. Doesn't it suck that we had to do that? Because the Japanese were so crazy. Yeah. They were so goddamn crazy that they would have never surrendered. So if we didn't drop those nukes, God knows what would have happened, Robbie. Hundreds of thousands, potentially tens of millions even could have died. Because the war would just never have ended. Those Japanese were just so nuts, dude. They were kamikazes. They they would have just driven themselves into suicide. I mean, they didn't care, dude. That's how nightmarish the Japanese people were. (laughs) They had to be put down. I mean, it's just so insane to just see this repeated over and over again. And it's like, I get it. Because if you're promoting American empire, if you're one of these editors or, or journalists that believes in American exceptionalism, like, you have to, at your core, believe that that was right. Because if you look at it objectively as a human being without being a baby-brained empire baby, you would understand that it's actually among the most heinous atrocities that have ever been perpetrated by the human race alongside the Holocaust. Well, that's exactly
1: right. Um, so, you that's know. That's why it's it's so interesting. It's like, It is, um, I mean, let me just read you a section from this Washington Post article. It's an opinion piece by someone named Evan Thomas. Uh, The headline is, The Bomb Saved Countless Lives in World War II, But We Must Never Use It Again. Um, It's easy in the internet age, all too easy, to argue that your side is right and the other side is not only wrong, but somehow morally inferior. But in the harsh world of geopolitics, the most momentous decisions are often morally ambiguous. The United States' role in the world, as it has played out for decades, is not susceptible to simplistic labels of right and wrong. Idealism and realism often clash. There's been a constant tension between our hopes for a better, more peaceful world of democratic progress and the exigencies of national interest. And then it goes on to say, and then it goes on to say to say that um, the judgment was almost certainly right. The commanders of the Japanese armed forces were fanatics on August 9th, after we dropped the second atomic bomb, Japan's war minister asked his fellow members of the Supreme War Council, would it not be wondrous for the whole nation to be destroyed like a beautiful flower? Um, So basically, it's implying that, yeah, that the Japanese are so crazy that they're basically self-genocidal, that they would be willing to uh, that you know this even goes a step further than what you were just saying that they would never surrender it's almost saying that like they would want to be nuked. like that's i mean so it's pretty <laughs> it's like yeah the no it is, it is basically <laughs> like, it is one of those <laughs> infamously dehumanizing methods you know to like basically tar and feather another adversarial nation um so you know it's a uh,
2: Which is amazing when you look back at what was real. What really happened, you know, and what really happened was Japan was going to surrender. Everyone knew that Japan was going to surrender, and that the United States made the decision to drop the nuclear bomb as a threat to Russia. It was actually just using Japan as bait. Um, They just sacrificed a hundred thousand people that were instantly incinerated, and it was really all about the war with the Soviet Union to send a very clear message. The bomb being dropped was the goal. It's like it wasn't just like an end to this endless war and it needed to happen and, oh man, it was so regretful. It was like, no, that was the intent. The intent was to drop the bomb to send a message not just to the Soviet Union but to the world. We're asserting our dominance as a newly dominant empire and we are going to start this arms race that will never end after these two civilian cities were nuked and 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 hundreds of thousand people after that died of radiation and they were carefully studied we knew exactly what the effects of radiation were because this was just a huge testing ground all these people were used as guinea pigs but robbie for the next several years um decades even the u.s continued to test dozens of nuclear weapons on unwitting citizens of the Marshall Islands that was newly attained as the empire, this chain of islands that was just used as a testing ground to test not only atomic bombs, which were the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but hydrogen bombs, which are bombs that are many times more strong than the atomic bomb, and even a thermonuclear bomb, which is a thousand times stronger, one thousand times stronger than the atomic bomb. It was exploded underwater God knows what that did to the world. But we know that countless people died from radiation. Countless soldiers were used as unwitting test subjects. I mean, it's surreal footage. You look at some of this shit in the Castle Bravo nuclear blast, and there's like hundreds of like sailors on these little boats that are all just surrounding the blast zone (laughs) Um, that were directed to like be there, I guess, just to see. I I don't know what to study it. It's it's surreal. I mean, what the U.S. did. There's estimations that up to one million people, up to one million people died from just the fallout of the subsequent testing here in yeah. the United States. You look at some of these like graphics of all the nuke tests that we did in New Mexico and, you know, in the Marshall Islands. I mean, hundreds. It's like, what did that do, dude? Like, yeah, it's it's horrific. Obviously you know pales in comparison to compare anything to Hiroshima and Nagasaki because we incinerated a hundred thousand people in an instant and we went to the Hiroshima museum and it was life changing and I really recommend everyone listening to go listen to that episode listen to the episode where my brother and I go to Japan and we go to the Hiroshima museum and we did a media roots radio episode about it and it's a really really powerful one because it was just fresh and really moving um but i mean we never talk about the damage that was done from just all the tests here too
1: i think Crazy. that's probably actually would be the most fair criticism of the the story that they chose to tell in oppenheimer because there was a lot of horrible things that happened like from the los alamos like very beginning in terms of the the tests that they did there that actually harmed and probably killed civilians that were in New Mexico. So that, I mean, that is interesting that none of that was covered in the movie. And there's actually a lot to unpack there that I was, I have only been made aware of recently. I mean, you can assume that the first nuclear test did not have probably even the same protocols or, or safety measures that the later ones even had, even though you're probably mostly talking about the accumulation of all the later ones but the so you'd have to imagine the first one probably had some pretty huge fuck-ups or even like just very careless things where they didn't care about you know giving radiation poisoning to civilians apparently they even did some radiation poisoning like testing on civilians and that's something that i haven't fully delved into but that's been documented i mean so so christopher nolan is pretty shitty for not even touching on any of that um at whatsoever in the film Right. I mean, and also just the threats
2: of uh, the threats to nuke China over Taiwan in 58 and also the plan to nuke the Soviet Union in like a preventative surprise attack around the same time. So there was a lot of crazy shit that was being planned and luckily did not <laughs> happen um, that Nolan could have explored. I I obviously understand why they did not do that because hollywood you know toes a very fine line and what's acceptable in terms of challenging you know the the myths that um that our foundation of our society is based upon but you know i would have i would have liked to see a little bit more risks taken in terms of the actual effect on japan and i mean was there any commentary at all about the soviet union and how this was done essentially just as a show of force
1: um it was both. I mean they definitely made there was there was mm. enough stuff in it to imply that this was designed like that they were they were hoping to use it against the Nazis at first and then once like the Nazis fell that they the mm. like the idea of quote unquote ending the war against Japan was like a secondary motivation. There was enough in there where I think they did a decent mm. job of that. And then the movie all became about how uh, maybe Oppenheimer is a traitor for trying to push back on the hydrogen bomb program because then they ended up, you know, then the Soviet Union ended up having their own hydrogen bomb. So mm-hmm. that there was enough in there to, to make it where it was about, yeah, this was really all about, going to be about the Cold War. So I don't think I can fault mm-hmm. them on that. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, they could have definitely gone, gone even further with that. Um, but uh, there was... Was there any commentary about just like
2: how nuclear weapons should not exist. I was like a fatal mistake and now here we are in this just arms race that will pr- inevitably probably, considering the dangerous countries that do oh. have hold of nuclear weapons, including the U.S., like it probably the
1: world might end just with a full-blown nuclear well, war. Well, I mean, I, I would say that that's, that was kind uh, of the movie's core that's value. The main, because, that's I mean, the main message. Yeah. S- spoilers to anybody who hasn't seen it. It's not like this is like a surprise ending or anything, but one of the la the very last shot in the movie is like, it's not him saying like, I have become death. You know, he does say it in the movie,
0: but yeah, yeah, yeah. he
1: kind of, he <laughs> kind of has this talk with Einstein and, you know, it's a, it's a great ending. I thought where it's, he's having this talk with Einstein and then he's like, you know, m- remember how we thought we were worried we were going to destroy the world if we just launched the first nuclear test? Like we didn't know if it would ignite the atmosphere and sort of chain reaction, mm-hmm. And, and just essentially destroy the world. And Einstein's like, yeah, I, I remember. And he's like, well, we already did. And then it just cuts to, like, it shows the whole world, like, basically being, like, incinerated. Like, like nukes dropping, and then, like, it causing, like, a chain reaction of almost, like, a fireball engulfing the entire planet. Oof. That
2: gave me chills. Yeah. Anyway, it
1: was... A, so... Good. Yeah, I mean, Chris Nolan, don't yeah, agree with his politics, but goddamn good filmmaker, so, I mean, that...
2: Yeah, and... And here we are on the precipice of potential nuclear war because we're just agitating the fuck out of two nuclear armed countries. Full-blown proxy war with one, ramping up our entire foreign policy agenda with the other. Amazingly, I didn't even realize this happened, but for the longest time, obviously, the world has lived under the deterrent of mutual assured destruction. And, and the U.S. has said for a very long time that it would never use nuclear weapons first the no first use policy. Apparently Biden's nuclear posture review that was put out earlier this year, um, or maybe it was last year. I'm not sure how old this article is, but he said that the U S would only consider the use of nuclear weapons in extreme circumstances to defend the vital interests of the U S or its allies or partners. So he literally walked back the notion of no first use. (laughs) And is basically saying, we will use nuclear weapons only in very extreme circumstances. So
1: it's like, oh, okay. So is that where we are at now? I mean, it's a very scary time. It is a scary time. And it's also interesting to think back to the Obama administration, how that's when I really remember getting some of the first signaling. I don't even remember this happening during the Bush administration, but maybe it did, where we got some strong signaling of preemptive nuclear strikes. Remember the whole bunker buster bomb scenario? Mm-hmm. That's what that's what that was mm-hmm. about. As like because Iran was trying to build the nuke, or we said they were, that that seemed to be on the table in the Obama era. So it is that is bizarre and surreal to have like Biden, you know, the Biden posture being that. Um, but I, let's just be real. I don't think that's ever been anywhere off the table. Like the U.S. probably in every administration has always had like dozens and dozens right. of preemptive strike nuclear options on the table. I mean, right. You know, so,
2: right. Yeah. We're the only country crazy enough to ever fucking use them during the arms race. Did Russia test nukes on its own citizens? Like
1: hundreds of times like we did. I'm sure that they did. Um, right? I don't think they did as many because they got, they joint like, I think that they were able to, I mean, this is the thing, like since they were behind us, mm-hmm a lot of the data had already been, like, established by our testing. So, like, how big the mm-hmm. blast radiuses are going to be for certain configurations and ignition systems of the way that the, you know, the bomb structure was arranged. Um You know, by the time they got... I think it was already... all the, A lot of the calculations, it seemed... At least the way they showed it in Oppenheimer, I don't know if this is accurate, but it seemed like even when, like, before the bombs were dropped on Japan, it was like people in Oppenheimer's group already like were theorizing bigger and bigger and bigger bombs, like with the math, like they knew that they could build, they already knew that a hydrogen bomb would work. Um, they already knew that you could even build more powerful ones. There was, it's it seemed like they knew there was no limit because the math showed them there wasn't really. And so that was, I mean, I think in that regard, I can't imagine any other country has done anywhere near the amount of nuclear testing we did because it was sort of like, they could probably just glean a lot from that at those results, you know? I mean, so I yeah. don't know how much, I mean, but again, Russia is pro- probably number two, you know, as far as like the people who mm-hmm. do the most. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they, they've tested, I think Russia actually tested uh, what is on record, the largest, um, the largest payload nuclear weapon ever. Uh, so, and I don't think the U S ever got to the point of testing that, even though we probably have, I remember that was called like the doomsday missile or something. Like they were even talking about that, like mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, we talked on that on the podcast, they tested something like that. in like, I want to say the 1970s, um, where they blew it up in the upper atmosphere and there's video of it online and you could see just how much bigger it is. than even like, uh, you know, bikini, bikini atoll and the hydrogen bombs and, and all that stuff.
2: That's insane. That's insane. Well, now, I mean, it's just amazing that we are constantly spending countless money on just renovating our nuclear arsenal, making sure it's up to speed. I remember Obama, I think was like overseeing like a trillion dollars or at least set in, set it into motion, that trillion dollar update on our nuclear arsenal. (laughs) And so I just want to close out this episode by just saying, you know, you know, it's a shame that Daniel Ellsberg has left us at 92 years old. He, during the last years of his life, he was very vocal about his role in being a former nuclear war planner, basically. And he was just sounding the alarm that we were closer than ever to a nuclear war, potentially, which is a pretty scary notion, considering everything that we're talking about now during World War II and beyond. But it's very troubling um, everyone should check out Daniel Ellsberg's work on the Doomsday Machine I think that was his last book that um, you know he just talked about all of this and why why he thinks it's we're at a scarier place than ever before it is very harrowing that, that we still have these weapons that could just completely annihilate the planet everything living on it and that it's just always there in the periphery it's always there not only on the horizon to think that this is like could happen but it's just like knowing that we just have this peter kuznick who did the untold history of the u.s with oliver stone and they addressed you know the the great myth of dropping the nukes and he made a good point that it wasn't just terrorism to drop nukes on civilian cities it's the ultimate act of terrorism to just posture to the world that you are threatening the entire world it wasn't just oh we dropped nukes on civilians and oh her- how horrific that is that's a war crime several times over just in itself but the biggest act of terrorism of all is just having the nukes and showing the planet that you did this and that you, everyone's at risk now because if the u.s is crazy enough to do that what else are they crazy enough to do so it was like the greatest act of terrorism in human history you're positioning yourself as like the lunatics of the planet and just sitting on your throne of nukes and just being like, this is who we are now. This is the new world.
1: Yeah. It's, um, I mean, it it is basically just, we're just holding the rest of the world hostage. I mean, along with all these other countries that also have nukes, it is a very surreal world we live in, And you know, I, it's kind of a miracle that we haven't had a full on nuclear exchange of some kind at this point. Um, and so it it is kind of surprising in a way that like that used to be more of a theme, you know, sort of the cold war fears of nuclear Armageddon seemed to be more of a theme in our culture. Uh, when we were like growing up in the eighties and even in the nineties and then kind of, you know, now it seems like we're there's an even greater chance of it, and kind of Oppenheimer is one of the only things that I've seen in a while that's that specifically focused on that. Um, and it's that's kind of interesting the disconnect of like the fears of that. People aren't really thinking about it yet. We seem even closer now. Um, so just something to think about and you know, uh, kind of chew on. <laughs>
2: Maybe we never should have split the atom. Yeah, I guess I guess we shouldn't have. But how do you But it's okay, Robbie, because nuclear energy will now solve us with climate change. So it's all gonna come full circle. We're um, you know, we're gonna harness this this technology that we have no idea how the fuck to harness safely and it's all gonna solve everything. Technology's gonna be our savior. So it's
1: all good, dude. <laughs> it's all good, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you everybody for uh, Um
2: I know Yeah, wait, I wanted to just quickly say sorry to everyone. I know these UFO hearings in Congress are totally batshit crazy and I'm sure that you really want to hear our take on it. And we really wanna give it, but we wanted to do our due diligence and give like a full episode. I think we I think it deserves like a lot of time spent because of how bizarre stuff is actually getting where we have alleged whistleblowers sitting there talking about alien bodies and alien biogenics. Um, being discovered. So it, it, and you have Congress people just like nodding their heads, taking notes. Everyone's just like, okay, like this is happening. Um, pretty surreal stuff going on. Definitely need to, to really unpack that Robbie in the next episode that we do. I can't wait to do it. So that's why we didn't touch upon it here, but stay tuned. It is coming
1: for sure. Thanks everybody for listening to media roots radio. And if you are not already a subscriber to media roots radio, please consider becoming one for as little as $5 a month or per episode that we put out. Uh, we put out about four episodes a month. Um, we are making more of them, Patreon exclusives these days. Uh, so, you know, if you want more than like two or one episode of media roots radio a month, that's how you're going to get access to the rest of our content. And, uh, we really appreciate, uh, you out there who are subscribing. And you could subscribe at patreon.com/slash Media Roots
0: let me make it clear. A leader for the people, no room for fear. Vardy he's standing tall, he's the man. Ready for the challenge, with a solid plan. From Florida sun, shut to the nation's stage. He's been making moves, breaking through the cage. Fighting for our freedom, defending our rights. Bringing strength and unity with all his might. rock artis, a name we can trust. For President, he's a must. For the fearless, he's got the knack To leave this nation, get us back on track.